Welcome to the podcast where we do it for the love of it. This is a sports podcast watching for the best stories and events from across the global competitive landscape. Got a story we should know about? Send us a message on Twitter at ForTheLovePod. I'm Kevin. I'm Charles. And here we go, bringing you the news. We're going to start with the World Cup today. Big story, obviously. Yeah, France coming out with a win. Uh, they were the big favorite. No surprises, I guess. Uh, I guess the score being as big as it was. 4-2 does seem like a surprise until you realize there was only one game in this entire World Cup that ended 0-0. This was a high-scoring World Cup right from the start. Very true. I mean, with the uh, inclusion of uh, instant replay, I guess, in a way that has never been done before, kind of led to a lot more penalty kicks, a lot more goals. In the long Including run. in the final, the first ever penalty awarded in the World Cup final based on VAR yeah. was Griezmann yeah. delivered it. Ended up being the tying goal, but it put them... It really set the tone that put France in the lead. Yeah, uh, that they know, never relinquished at that point. Yeah, uh, France kind of a powerhouse in this one uh, the whole way through. I mean, beating Belgium kind of solidified them to be the the higher favorite of the two. So I mean, yeah, that side of the bracket was clearly stronger. Yeah, than. you know, Belgium not losing a game besides to France, and then walking through England in the bronze medal game. Uh, Pointless you know. game. Reiterate that. Yeah, still pointless. Uh, bronze medal games still really shouldn't exist at all, but I guess for the fans, um, and it gives you uh, something to do in that day before the game start. But, uh, you know, it... Uh, I guess that's what a sports is, giving us something to do when we got nothing no, better are. to do. <laughs> gotta say I love it, so... Yeah, no, um, it, was, uh, it was an exciting game, even till the end, even though it was kind of held in hand. After a while, um, but yeah, no, it was a really cool World Cup. I want to get your thoughts on some of the awards. Luka Modric ends up getting the Golden Ball Award. Uh, yeah, uh, fair. One of the uh, their best goalie there, so that would only make sense. Modric is the uh, midfielder. Oh, um, that long-haired dude. Subasic is the goalie. Subasic, yeah, okay, there we go. There's my disconnect. No, uh, Modric, unbelievable the whole way through... Uh, kind of the linchpin of Croatia, so uh, that only makes sense. Yeah, he had as much to do with his team as anybody, except for maybe Messi. When Messi performed, when Messi did something, Argentina went if they didn't. Yeah. They it, didn't. Other than him, I think Modric might have had the biggest impact on anybody, and I yeah. suppose that's why he wins the golden ball. 100% there. Golden boot, Harry Kane won it, despite scoring goals in only two games. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> just a weird, I mean... I I thought, no, I'm like, who won it? It must be someone else, must be someone else, but it ends up... Yeah, we were talking before the podcast, and we must have thrown out six, seven names <laughs> trying to think of before actually looking it up and being like, oh, Harry Kane, really? Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy to see, because there were so many people who were second. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, there uh, were five people tied for second in that competition. Yeah, so that's probably where confusion came from there. Golden Glove Award, Thibaut Courtois. There we beats go. Beats a very tight competition. Yes. Uh, fantastic the whole way through. That's the only way to put that. So, I mean, he does deserve it, but there also were a few who were nipping on his heels for sure. Yeah, you mentioned earlier Supasic. thought <laughs> yeah. that he should have won it. Oh, 100%. Like, it was, uh, they played great the whole way through. It oh. If they gave it to him, I would not have. I wouldn't have batted an eye, eye either way. I think Subasic has become my favorite player. It's spectacular to watch. 
watch him play. But Thibaut Courtois, especially in uh, the quarterfinal match, was absolutely spectacular. They wouldn't have won without him. Very true. Uh, I mean, he was dominant all the way through that match for sure. Um, yeah, there was the five minutes where he let a couple goals in against Japan, but other than that, they pressed a lot, and he, he kept it clean for the most part. Yeah, and Japan was a very surprising team that was extremely exciting, so it wasn't like it was a slouch opponent. And so. the last award I dare you to attempt to argue against is Kylian Mbappe wins the Young Player Award. <laughs> Who else am I going to name? Um, nobody. He was unbelievable. Most exciting and crazy that he is now tied with the youngest player to ever score a goal in the World Cup final. Spectacular goal, and I don't even think it was the best play yeah. he had in that final. There was a play in about the 60th minute. He drove down, somehow got around players, got an excellent chance off, just didn't. Didn't quite get it into the net. Yeah, that probably got, would have been goal the whole entire cup if there was... This guy's got talent for for miles. It's, it's amazing to watch him play. Yeah, it seems like he'll definitely be the future of France moving forward. Future of soccer moving forward. Yeah, I think soccer France period, is a little yeah, small for the, I guess. this guy's potential. Very true, you know. Uh, so it'll be exciting to see what he does next time around and also through his club play for sure. Okay, so we're going to slide over to uh, the NHL with some uh, sad news uh, with the passing of Ray Emery, uh, which is real sad. I mean, he was an exciting goalie who had some pretty electric fights, a very kind of uh, exciting player to see play and passed away, which is super sad. Yeah, former boxer, he was clearly, he was that kind of player that, Smack in the mouth, very exciting person. Very sad story, obviously. Drowning. Yeah. And in a year where in Canada there's been a significant rise of drowning, authorities are putting out the word that you do have to be careful. It just serves as one more reminder that you got to take care of yourself. Yeah, make sure you go with someone else. Make sure you're safe, you know. Yeah. So, so we'll try to transition to... A few stories around the NHL world. Eric Carlson has not been traded, has not signed an extension. Um, I'm not sure what this means for him, but uh, I feel like his future there is very, very uh, bleak. He will not be there past this season. If he finishes this season there, I will be surprised. I feel like it might end up being a little later in the season that he gets moved out of there, but... Uh, yeah, I think this is just bad news for the Ottawa Senators. Yeah. Because clearly they're not getting the offers that they want. Yes. Because they, they lowballed him at the start. They they clearly plan to get rid of him. Yeah. They tried to give him a small contract so that someone would go out of their way and give them way more for him, and it's just not the case. I think Carlson was... Said saying he will only resign if he's in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay does not have the cap room for him, so it's it's just a very weird situation through and through. Yeah, part of the reason why Tampa Bay doesn't have the cap room is they just signed Nikita Kucherov to an eight-year extension. Yeah, uh, pay the man when you do when you have a season like that. You gotta pay the guy. He was exciting. I mean, he was in there for 
he was leading leading goals for a long period of time. Yeah, MVP candidate for most of the year, just kind of fell off in the last month or so. Right. And I think part of that, it wasn't even that his talent fell off. It was just he'd been the leader in the conversation for so long that people started to search for somebody else, and he uh, ended up dropping quite a ways. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's very tough. It's weird. It's weird that you kind of forget about those guys. It's kind of like the LeBron James thing. It's like LeBron James is dominant. He's dominant. He's dominant. He's dominant. He's dominant. I don't care about that anymore. That's kind of what it was. Like, he was that exciting. He was scoring that many goals. Him and, uh, what's his name as well? Uh, Stamkos. Stamkos, both just unstoppable forces when it came to scoring at the start of the season. Uh, and Kucherov never slowed down. Just, it was a story that was always there, and then eventually you become numb to it, and you kind of slip back into the back of people's minds. But, wow, what an exciting season, and he deserves to be paid that money. Yeah, I absolutely thought they, at the start of the playoffs, I thought they were the favorites they were going to win. Tripped up on the, the freight train that was the Washington Capitals. But clearly, he's worth the money. Yeah, 100%, and he'll be the future there for a while, that's for sure. Okay. Uh, Shall we move on? Let's go back to Europe and talk about the Wimbledon finals. Yeah, um, super exciting finals, especially because Serena Williams, after having a child and having a period of time off, making it all the way back to the finals and falling short. Just slipped up, yeah. Uh, oh, it was heartbreaking. Uh, but, hey, uh, all the power to uh, the German counterpart. Kerber. His Kerber. last name. I... I'm trying to remember her first name, unfortunately. Kerber was very, I mean, she was very powerful. Uh, she, I mean, beat her well, handedly. I mean, uh, they've had multiple spats back and forth. Her I being mean, on the losing side, I believe, oh, what was it, about three times in yeah, a row? I believe this is the third time they've competed. Serena Williams won the first two. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a huge monkey off her back. She'll be very excited about that, all said and done. Um, we'll slide over to the men. Novak Djokovic wins again. Uh, Novak Djokovic quietly, quietly making his way there. Then all of a sudden, upset of Nadal, and everyone is kind of on their toes and knowing exactly what this man has done it before, and he can do it at any point, and back on his old characteristic self and winning over top of the South African... Kevin Anderson. Is, he, is so, it Kevin? Yes, it, it is Kevin, Kevin Anderson. Anderson. Yeah, yeah, big, strong, traditional, uh, traditional Wimbledon-type player, big serve, tall guy, very yeah. strong. But Djokovic I mean, just has much more skill. Yeah, I mean, it was he beat uh, Inzer to slide in there. Beat Inzer in a massive marathon game. Yeah, went, what was it, 11? I think 49 rounds in the yeah, fifth it set. Was like, just... 11, and a, 11 hours or something, I believe the match was. Longest, well, second longest? Second longest behind a game that John Isner was also in. Yeah. Um, that happened 2012, I believe it was. Yeah, and it was, that was like, that was an insane amount of hours. So, I mean, it was a very exciting um, match, and Djokovic getting back to his former self and bringing, bringing home the Wimbledon, he'll be very happy about that. Um... So where does this place, I believe it's his 13th major in his career, where does that place him all time for you? Uh, I mean, it's so quiet compared to the Federers and the Nadals. 
but I mean, he's got to be—he's up there. He's—he's he's a name you got to talk about being one of the better players of all time for sure. Absolutely wild, wild all time. When you consider the—you can watch in this one tournament, you can see Roger Federer, arguably the greatest of all time. Yeah. Nadal right up there. Yeah. Djokovic in the conversation. Hundred percent. And Serena Williams. Simply yeah, the greatest simply, of all time. Probably one of the greatest <laughs> athletes of all time, Absolutely. period. Uh, so, I mean, he, he's definitely in the conversation of being one of the better uh, tennis players of all time, for sure. Sliding over to your favorite thing in the world, cycling. Absolutely. Tour de France is right in the middle, right in the heat right now. Okay. Um, so we're going to slide over. We're going to start. We'll even start with number one. The first... Uh, lag of it, sliding all the way to eight, and then we'll spend a little time on the ninth. We're going to go with the winners of each. All right, so it started out with a standard sprint stage that was pretty pretty calm until about 25Ks to go, then just crash after crash after crash. Absolute chaos. Fernando Gaviria wins a sprint in his first career Tour de France stage. Chris Froome, uh, Richie Porte... And Nairo Quintana lost 51 seconds to 65 seconds, oh. but it wasn't heartbreaking for anybody necessarily. Okay, okay, because of all the crashes, kind of slowed everyone down. Yeah, bit. exactly. There wasn't. Nobody likes to lose 51 seconds, but if you're going to do it, you want to do it on the very first stage. Gotcha. Uh, stage two, Peter Sagan wins in a fairly simple. Stage, good, strong sprint out of the three-time defending world champion. Yeah. And then stage three. Stage three was significant for its lack of significance. Yeah. Everybody thought Team Sky's the strongest team. Chris Froome, because of the crash in stage one, was 51 seconds behind. Mm-hmm. We thought, you know, there's, there's a serious conversation whether Chris Froome can get back to the rest of his rivals. And he didn't really. The top five... We're all just neck and neck. I think 11 seconds separated the top five with BMC winning. Oh, wow. And Team Sky actually losing, I think it was five, four or five seconds, to Richie Port and that, putting Greg Van Avermaet into the yellow jersey. There we go. Okay, stage four or five. Uh, stage four, both of these sprint stages, the first one a more traditional sprint stage, Fernando Gaviria wins easy. Uh, once he appears to be the fastest, Sagan has more skill, but he doesn't have the lead out train that Gaviria has, and Gaviria at his top speed is just massively impressive. Gotcha. I will say, under Greipel surprised me. He finished second in this in this stage. Oh, wow. I thought I thought this man was just too old at this point. <laughs> Very impressive. Peter Sagan did finish up close to retain the green jersey as well. Okay. And then stage five, a bit of an uphill finish on this one. Better suited for Peter Sagan, and sure enough, he did not disappoint, and he wins. It, the guys, it you can't say enough good things about Peter Sagan. He's I mean, favored to best. win the whole thing, right? Still for the green jersey, absolutely. Yeah. You can't. You, there's, there's no. I'm less speechless about this man. There's, <laughs> I've never seen a bike rider with his just overall talent. Yeah, it's spectacular. Stage six, one of the premier stages every time they included in the tour since it came back in 2010. The Mur de Bretagne stage, probably the favorite for this situation, was Dan Martin. And after finishing second the last time they came to this, he delivered very impressive win. Yeah. Now, Peter Sagan, Julian Alaphilippe, some of the 
more classic riders weren't able to keep up with the incredible pace that was pushed all day and it landed so that it, the big the big overall pure climbers were the ones who made it to the top and after finishing just behind Cadell Evans Dan Martin this time nailed it down oh so it was Alexei Vilyamov that he finished behind oh, okay Stage seven then led to Dan Martin not having a good day. He cra had a had a crash. This was the most boring, probably the most boring stage of the race. Okay. You still see these stages. It was two hundred and thirty-one kilometers, perfectly flat. It's a lot to ask a breakaway to get out and do something. So they all just kind of sit yeah, together. Yeah, everybody sat. Um, Monte Group Goubert sent out a rider. Realized it wasn't wasn't it was he was going to be all by himself called him back sent out another rider still no takers eventually on the third time johan alfredo they kept him out there was a slight crosswind battle between about 80 and 70 kilometers which made it exciting for a bit but in the end it was the sprint finish we all knew was going to end dylan grunewagen wins showing the form that he had shown early in the season that we hadn't seen for in the early parts of the tour Sewer, yeah Stage 8 was a slightly more exciting version, once again won by Dylan Grunewagen in the sprint. The go. notable part here was that there was some jostling at the finish line, in the, in the end finish, and both Greipel and Fernando Gaviria were relegated to the back of the group. Oh. And the biggest news for that, because Dylan Grunewagen did win, did win freely. Yeah. But in the race for the green jersey, Sagan was moved from 4th to 2nd. That's a huge jump yeah, in points, massive. and even bigger, Gaviria would have had 35 points, and ended up getting nothing because of his relegation, and Sagan is now clearly entrenched in the green jersey already at this point. There we go, there we go. Okay, now we get to what's happening right now, stage nine. As I predicted last week, this was the stage to watch. Absolutely incredible from start to finish. It started off with a bang for BMC, and not in a good way. Richie Port crashes before they even get to a single cobblestone section, breaks his collarbone, he's out for the tour. Oh. Exact same stage as last year. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking for him. He, you know, he comes in this, looking to be one of the... We want, we're looking to win, really. Absolutely. There was to... no, no question what his goals <laughs> were here. Right, and now to be set back yet again, crashing out, heartbreaking. I can't imagine as a competitor how he's feeling. Like, it's... Just a massive blow. For this to happen to him again, he's had great success. He won the Tour de Suisse just a couple of weeks ago. But when it comes to the Grand Tours, he stuff always happens to him. Just it, that unlucky guy. It seems like all the bad luck is in his corner. When especially when it comes to almost the exact same leg, it happened last time. Oh, wow, though. Yeah, just. Very painful to watch. See him on the side of the road, just unable to get up. Get up yeah. It's always one of the more painful experience, painful images in sports as a rider having to give up the Tour de France. But that was just the start of the crashes. Not too long later, Dylan Grunewagen went down hard. He was not to be seen again. Finished in the back of the pack. And then the real massacre of the, the favorites started happening. I don't think there was a single favorite that did not get caught up in at least one crash. Holy. It was wild. And TJ Van Garderen, who immediately takes over the mantle of leader as Team BMC, just had a terrible day afterwards. Crashed, lost his nerve, repeatedly crashed really slow out of corners. Yeah, and he just kind of got afraid that he's going to stumble again and just let everything kind of get in front yeah, of him. Yeah, we've seen that with riders like Thibaut Pinot before. It gets in your head and yeah. you just not... You don't want to hit the ground again and then you start maybe like 
falling down when you could have stayed up, but you just didn't want the crash to be terrible, so you tumble on your own accord, slowing yourself right down, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he was not the only potential contender that fell. Uh, Garrett Thomas and Chris Froome fell. Alejandro Valverde fell. Nairo Quintana was caught up by a fall. I don't believe Roman Bardet fell, but he did have five mechanicals on oh, the day. Crippling. I think there might have been a problem with AG2R's tire pressure. I think they calculated something wrong. When you see repeatedly happen, yeah. you got to think there is a problem with the equipment. The crash that stood out the most for me was Mikel Landa, who crashed with about 50k to go. And it just encapsulated the the stage as a whole perfectly. Yeah. Robbie McEwen, the announcer, said, there's just a bit of calm here right now. And as he was saying that, you could see in the in the screen, Mikel Landa fell. Oh. <laughs> it just encapsulated. There, was, there wasn't even enough moment of calm in this wild race to say, hey, look, a moment of calm. Exciting to watch. Crash. Exciting to watch. Not so much to be a rider in, it seems like. Yes, a lot of negative comments coming out of this. And that brings up the question here, that begs the question that is, should Cobblestones be in if it's going to lead to so many falls? I mean, you see Richie Port now breaking the collarbone, things like that. Like, if, if, this is, if Cobblestones were taken out for the reason of safety-ish, like bringing them back, seeing all these falls... Does this mean that we've seen the end of cobblestones maybe for good? I really hope not. For one, the, the crass answer is this was really exciting. I absolutely loved it, and I frankly don't care. Yeah. For a more nuanced opinion, I think bike handling is part of racing. And when the Tour de France especially is for the all-around rider, for the person who can do absolutely everything. And I can't think of a way to really test your bike handling abilities that's perfectly safe. So I think dangerous descents and cobblestone stages are always going to be part of it, and I think they should be, because you're testing who is the best absolute rider. Um, I would I would agree with you in, a, in the sense that, like, they're not used to cobblestones really as well as much as they should be because they've only been reintroduced. No, a lot for... of riders, especially contenders, just skip Paris-Roubaix and the Tour de Flanders, which is really the only two places you do see the cobblestones. Exactly, right? So now... It's since you're not getting the, that work and now for the big show there's cobblestones go to those events figure out what it's like get Absolutely. that work I think people like Roman Bardet Mikel Landa who don't go to Roubaix really should if they want to win the Tour de France 100% if, if you do not know how to ride cobblestones and how it affects your bike and how it affects you know like they were talking about maybe it was the dust that was leading to a lot of people falling just the build up on the tires from the cobblestones like these are things you have to take into account. You can't ride recklessly. How to learn how to deal with. 100%. And it's very clear. Like you saw Sagan, who's an, who won Paris-Roubaix earlier this year. He knew how to get around those turns. It's, yeah. It was very impressive watching him. It was a completely different thing when you saw some of the overall contenders take yes. the race. It wasn't... Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, people may have been caught up in crashes, but like you, you didn't see Froome hit the ground. You didn't see... Well, you, you saw know, everybody I mean, hit the, hit the ground, ground at some but point. But, I mean, you didn't see him lead to a crash because he went into a corner wildly. You know, like there... Yeah, Froome's crash was caused by his teammate Johnny Moscon, who, who lost Who lost control, right? So, like, these things kind of are a case of just not really understanding how cobblestones affect everything to do with your bike. We should actually sense. refer to... The end result of this stage, of the course. action was so wild, we've kind of ignored it. Uh, John Dagenkolb 
uh, wins the stage, got away in a three-man breakaway with yellow jersey Green Aver uh, Greek, Greg Avermart and Belgian national champion Yves Lampère, and he won the sprint out of the three. Peter Sagan couldn't just was following every move and just happened to miss the right the right move yeah. and ends up not winning the stage that he was heavily favored for. As for overall losses, obviously Richie Porte is gone, and Rigoberto Oran did lose about a, a little over a minute. Ooh. But after an incredible 50-kilometer chase, Mikel Landa somehow got onto the group in the last kilometer. He crashed with 50k go, so he doesn't didn't lose any time to yeah. Chris Froome and the rest of the favorites. Yeah. Roman Bardet as well got back right at the very end. So there wasn't actually a lot of overall movement. Yeah. So, I mean, hey... Uh... That's exactly what the cobblestone was expected to bring, excitement. Absolutely. You know, if this was the one leg you caught, you caught the most exciting part of the race so far. Uh, we'll see how it kind of pans out from here, but where we stand, who's your favorites moving forward? I still think it's hard to bet against Chris Froome. The only, the only negative I've seen out of Chris Froome so far is how good Garrett Thomas has been. Yeah. And I genuinely believe Team Sky saying all the right things. We only have one team leader. But Garrett Thomas has been perfect. He's, he's in second place. He's the leader of any true contender. Greg Van Avermaer is currently in yellow, but he's not going to win. And he's been perfect so far. Yeah. So unless there's some friction there that leads to the, the disillusion of Team Sky... At this point, I've seen nothing to suggest that Chris Froome won't win this race. Okay, okay. So, and then... So you imagine Chris Froome to be the winner. Where does uh, where do you see uh, other people landing in this race as well? One of the interesting kind of side notes of this stage was how Chris Froome treated Roman Bardet. Roman Bardet is clear scares him. Like he was not tracking Adam Yates very closely. He wasn't tracking Rigoberto Oran closely before this. He wasn't tracking Richie Port very closely. But he has watched every single pedal rev that Roman Bardet has taken. So Chris Froome knows a lot more about cycling than I do, and I'm yeah. going to take his, whatever's going on in his mind, he clearly thinks Bardet is going to be very dangerous in the mountains, and okay. I think he's going to be right at the top. There we go. So let's see. Let's see. So who do you say all said and done? You're saying Froome, like that's your choice, or is that like your favorite by way of the way things are letting it stacking up? I think he's done everything. He's got caught in a couple crashes. But I, I just, I haven't seen any reason to go against Chris Froome. Okay. And then I would put Bardet and Vincenzo Nibali's also been quite good. I'll put him in third place on the podium. Okay, so there we go. Boom, that's your guess right there. Put your money in on your bets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're sliding over to uh, the Giro. Now this race wrapped up earlier this morning with the first six stages. Traded the pink jersey, traded constantly. Very wild stage. Nobody was really grabbing horns. And then stage seven, the world time trial champion, Annemiek van Vluten, was always the favorite for this stage. But, oh my, did she dominate. She took three minutes out of every single person in the course. It was a sensational performance. Yeah. So, that's... Like, that was unexpected from her, too, as well. Like, you well, expect her to do she, she well. She expected to win yeah. that stage. Like, she is the world champion, champion but yeah. to take that amount of time, like, you never you expect that, that. that. Like, that was world-class on top of world-class. Absolutely. And then she finished that off. Marion Voss won the next stage, and you wonder, can she crawl back time? But then stages 9 and 10, what does Van Vluten do? 
dominates on the Zolkalan, solo breakaway for more than two kilometers, extends her lead, and then just as the final kick, completely unnecessary in the final stage, but she goes again for a solo victory, wins by more than four minutes, amazing performance. Wow, that's exciting to say the least, uh, to see someone to see someone so dominant, you know, in those last few legs. Absolutely. It's really cool to see, for yeah. sure. She was the favorite going into the whole race, but I don't think anybody expected what we saw out of her. Mm. Just wildly impressive. Showing off those, uh, maybe showboating a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody likes to flat. When you're in pink, you like, to, you like to show it off. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay, so I guess we'll slide out of cycling and move over to eSports. Making our way over to the Overwatch League. First inaugural championships are underway now. Quarterfinals uh, this past week. Exciting. And we had some exciting stuff that we caught uh, on our way. So we seen London playing... Um, London played LA. LA, yes. Yeah. Uh, and an exciting match that we were hoping would slide into... Uh, assault stage, but it never ended up happening. No, it was kind of strange. The LA Gladiators started off winning the first match 3-0, and then London Spitfire came back and won 3-0, 3-0 to take the match. Boom, and game over. That's the way it goes. We never got the full, the, full the five real experience. <laughs> you know, so it, I mean, an exciting finish there, and that means that the team moving on will be uh, the London Spitfire to Take on the Los Angeles Valiant next week. Yeah, so, I mean, it's this is crazy. And if you, if you get a chance, make sure you check this out. This is really exciting, especially if you play the game, you understand a bit about it. Even if you don't, there's something there for you. Yeah. It is. I have never played Overwatch, and I was glued to the screen watching this. It's, it's, very, it's, it's wild. You, you start to get it. A little bit, but it's still just, it's coming at you from all angles. It's yeah, very it's like as a person who's played Overwatch, I mean, I'm not Diamond or anything, Gold, but uh, it's crazy. It's crazy watching the plays and the teamwork that these teams have. It is crazy exciting. Um, we'll talk about the other uh, finalists here. Uh, yeah, so this all, uh, the semifinals start this Wednesday. The London Spitfire take on the Los Angeles Valiant. And the Philadelphia, I have forgotten the team's names. <laughs> Philadelphia. The, the surprise upset team, the Philadelphia Fusion, are yeah. taking on the favorites, New York Excelsior. Yeah, Excelsior has been pretty dominant this whole time. So, I mean, it'll be exciting to see. Maybe they can shake it up, bring them down a peg, and make themselves move up to the first ever championship. And, uh, you yeah, know. The Boston Uprising were heavy favorites going into that quarterfinal. Yes. And it was it was back and forth. We did see the assault stage in this series. Yes, there we and go. Philadelphia Uprising used it to move on. Yes, and uh, Philadelphia surprising them shock. You could see the shock. It's exciting, man. Get a, if you get a chance, check this out. We'll always do that. Also, in other esports news, Disney, ESPN, uh, and ABC all purchased the rights to show Overwatch League. So we'll be catching it now on your cable box, right in your living room. So yeah. there's no, no excuse for not watching this. <laughs> exactly, no excuses. Okay, uh, sliding over now to another exciting sport that you might not keep your eye on: rowing. Yes, this is the last World Cup series of the year. 
this one took place in Lucerne, Switzerland. Absolutely beautiful views the whole time. Oh yeah, Switzerland, there's a second to none beautiful place to do it all. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Canadians that did well in it. Uh, yeah, good showing by the Canadians. I really want to highlight their, the, the first final, the first race to come to an end. Last week, I, or three weeks ago, sorry, I did mention the New Zealand World Champions yes. absolutely dominated. There was, it was complete... Complete domination. You looked at it and you're like, how can these people ever lose? lose? Yes. And sure enough, it starts. Uh, the race starts and they jump out to an early lead. Canadians are close by, but London was close by for the yeah. first K last la, in the last event in Linz. But it didn't matter. Eventually, they just pulled away. Yeah. This one, it kind of seemed like they were doing that, and the Canadians were just holding on a bit better with about 250 meters to go. Yeah. They were about a boat length behind, and it seemed, it seemed like, yeah, this is what we're expecting. New Zealand's going to walk away with this. But then an incredible sprint by the Canadian women, whose names I did write down, Filmer and Janssens, and they closed it to just... Just a few centimeters by the end, New Zealand uh, still squeaked it out yeah. for the win, but an incredible performance by the two Canadian women. I mean, you have to give them a shout-out in that situation. I mean, New Zealand did show that they are obviously heavily favorites, and, you know, you, I mean, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you win by an inch or a mile, but, I mean, hey, it was, they made it a show, and, uh, uh, you know, show, put Canada's best foot forward. It was spectacular to watch. Another great sprint finish was in the women's single skulls. This one, the announcers knew it right from the start. They said, watch out for Freeland, I believe her name was. Zeman, sorry, Carlene Zeman. And she started off incredibly slowly. In the first 500 meters, she was in sixth place, but then just slowly coming up, and in the last few hundred kilometer, few hundred meters, once again, just an incredible performance by her. But just as the two Canadian in the double skulls couldn't quite pull it off, Janine Gmelin, I'm sure hope I'm pronouncing that right, was unbeatable. Came she away with an excellent win. The Swiss there, managing to get that W. Uh, exciting, exciting, exciting. All the way through, for sure. Especially those like those harrowing finishes that are just, you know, like yes. <laughs> an inch a foot. You know, you just you can't help but get your heart rate up, and that's some ex that really exciting. Those two goes for sure. You know. And speaking of harrowing finishes, uh, this one not a great race for Canada. They did get to the final, but they finished in sixth place. The men's eights came down. To a ridiculously close finish, just 0.14 seconds separated the German and Australian boats at the wow. end. Photo finish, wild, wild heart stopping <laughs> race, but the Germans did did hold on. They did hold on to that yeah. point. Australia was closing in the last, it was even just like the last 150 meters, Australia was closing bit by bit, bit by bit, but just the last lunge came, the timing mm. was correct for the Germans, Yeah, and, and they, they win. Made. The, the last race in world in the World Cup season. There we go. So, definitely some wicked rowing there. So, if you get a chance, you should check that out. Uh, you can find that online 
any feed. There's a whole bunch. It's exciting to check out, but that's the last of the World Cup season. So, Yes, the World Championships, I believe, are August 21st. Something I'll get, uh, we'll talk about a bit more, and we'll, I'll get that exact date for you. 100%. Just the last, last great Canadian performance were the Canadian Double Skulls. There we go. Canada sliding into second here. Just in front of, just behind the New Zealand team, who absolutely, the New Zealand across the board dominated in Lucerne this week. Very strong team, and they they had it all together this week. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't be stopped. Great teamwork, great coaching across the board. It's where you're going to see those kind of, the, those separations that get you that really dominant team together. It was exciting. New Zealand put their put their best foot forward all the way across the competition for sure. Um, right. Yeah, so uh, we'll move on in just a second, but it is August, sorry, September 9th. The World Rowing Champions, elite, uh, both Paralympic and elite men's and women's competitions. Definitely check it out. Definitely give that one uh, a go. Okay, sliding into our final conversation and then the NBA there was some conversation about Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, it took a bit of a turn this week. Yeah, I've turned to the Canadian side of things. <laughs> uh, apparently they're having some conversation about Toronto making a move for Kawhi. Which I don't understand because it doesn't seem like he would sign again in Toronto if they were to make a move. And I feel like they would have to give up maybe a little too much because they're not the deepest team in the world. So the general thing I've been hearing is Kawhi for DeRozan, a couple of young, a couple of young players Players. along the bench, and at least two first-round picks. Yeah. I mean, I I mean it's an upgrade, yes. But if he doesn't sign, that's too much. I disagree. I don't like you want to resign him, but okay. I got two basic reasons for resigning him. Okay, One okay. is the what have you got to lose? True. Are the Raptors really going to get to the final with DeRozan and Lowry this year, or next year, or the year after that? No, but if you take this, you're not going to be in the final ever. So you, if you take this, you could be in the final this year. There's a higher chance of being in the final this year. And if you suck, then you suck and maybe you get a top draft pick and you rebuild in a couple of years. I don't know. I just feel like if you're going to make this move, I feel like getting rid of DeMar DeRozan is immediately not what you want to do. If there was a way to maybe bundle in Lowry and a bunch of young guys in some first, sure. But if you're going to give away that superstar and replace him with this superstar, who is better, but also get rid of depth, you have one year of exciting and the rest of it as, hey, we're now the Cavaliers. You have the odds of winning a championship without Kawhi Leonard in the next 10 years. What are those odds for the Raptors? Half a percent? Yeah. Something like that. Probably. And if you trade for Kawhi Leonard and you really just have this one year, what's the chance that you win a championship this year? I think it's 2%. I'm not saying it's very high, but 
I think it's a higher chance you win this year with Kawhi Leonard than you win with their team as constituted in the next decade. I would argue that you have less of a chance with Kawhi Leonard, and you're be like, why is that? Because it doesn't matter. This is the best Golden State team that's ever been. <laughs> it don't matter. Golden State wins this year. Who cares? But there's always the possibility for injuries. Windows can you, open. Like, Something you, can you're go talking wrong. about like like something catastrophic like they all ran into each other while they were dunking the same ball like it just it's just never gonna happen mangled ACL. <laughs> just one giant ACL <laughs> yeah. injury you know like, the, like that's the like, only way that they're not gonna win and it's it's it doesn't make sense I'd say let Kawhi do what Kawhi's gonna do odds are it's gonna be the Lakers next year there was a little bit of a talk of a four-year plan for the Lakers to be what they want to be, which I thought was weird because, like, you got LeBron James yeah, now. Yeah, why waste any years <laughs> Like, it should be a one-year plan. LeBron James, maybe wait a year to get Kawhi. That's it. Like, All right, so you're not buying my first plan. Here's my no. second reason to okay, trade for Kawhi. give me that Kawhi. second one. I'm going, I'm going to the percentages again. Okay. Chances Kawhi Leonard plays for the Toronto Raptors in 2019-2020 if he doesn't get traded to the Raptors. Zero percent. Obviously, there's no chance that's happening. <laughs> okay, okay. Chances that Kawhi Leonard signs with the Raptors in 2019-2020 okay, if he right. trades for the Raptors. Let me check these I think numbers that's maybe here. 10, 15, 20 percent. Let, let, let me check these You numbers. can sell him on uh, Toronto. You just got rid of the one of the best coaches that you've had in forever, and you're going to have some bum as a coach, and you're zero. It's still <laughs> zero. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't I think there's anything. a real chance you get him. Toronto's a lovely city. I hear I've never left the airport. But... I've you can sell too. him on Toronto. It's not like the tax... He's going to take quite a hit in taxes going from San Antonio to Toronto. But Toronto to LA, I think the tax situation isn't that different. I guess they're fair. I mean, but you're talking about LeBron James and Lonzo Ball and Kyle Kazuma and, or DeMar DeRozan. Kawhi Leonard can be a Pied Piper. Maybe Kyrie Irving decides he wants to join him in Toronto. <laughs> Are we just making things up now? Like, oh, all of a sudden, Boogie decides that when he's done, there we go. Boogie, he comes Boogie to can Toronto. Join. Toronto's the like, next super team. Like, their entire first line just is second liners. This and is out of, like. Admittedly, these are not high percentages, but 5% is bigger than 0%. Yeah. And 0% is the chance it happens if you don't trade for Kawhi 0% is about the same percent of him staying if you sign him. So I, I don't. No, 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 no. This doesn't make any sense. Don't do it. Run for your life. Like, don't make that move. Don't. Like, you're going to... Like, being in the playoffs consistently is better than being the worst team in the league for 10 years. So basketball has clearly grown in this country. Yeah. Like, the Raptors are so much bigger deal than they were even oh, five 100%. years ago. I mean, we got Drake dancing around trying to bring us players. Like, we almost had LeBron James because of Drake. No, I'm kidding, but... <laughs> How much trade for Andrew Wiggins? Like, there are strong, there are quality Canadian players. You get Kawhi Leonard in there, and yes... I might have to keep lowering this percentage. Let's say 3% chance that this happens. No, That's still better is, than 0% it chance. It is a 0% chance. Even if he goes there, it is even more zeros. Unless DeMar DeRozan is there as well. He has to have a superstar to play with him. Like It, it has to be a semblance of a chance that it could be a super team in its own right. 
before. I think you you try to convince Kawhi that he's the Pied Piper, that he's the man. You shower him and you bow at his feet. Nah, man. You he goes to L.A. where he's always wanted to be, and he just happens to be with LeBron James. At that point, probably won't be the best player in the world, but he probably will be top three, four, five. You gotta go to you gotta go to L.A. I'm still, if I'm Toronto, I'm taking the 2% chance that something could happen. There's a 0% chance that nothing happens and you tanked your entire situation. And you got rid of the coach you got rid of because he sat Lowry. And you keep... Uh, that that is looking worse and worse day by day. Right? Like, Are there any other free agency trade moves you want to talk about? Jabari Parker going to Chicago? Another man going home? I Two guess. Years, I don't million. know. I just feel like... It's just, we're just moving around tiny pieces to teams that are irrelevant. Okay, then I'm going to talk to something I only mentioned briefly to you. I haven't described this to you. The Elam ending. This is a concept Nick Elam has come up with. The Elam rule? Yes, the, the proposed Elam rule to reduce all the fouling and the dragging on that you get in the last two minutes of a basketball game. Oh, okay. Everybody's taking timeouts. Okay. So what he wants to do is he wants to end the fourth quarter three minutes early. And then at that point, so the game will end, but the clock will be shut off. The shot clock will still be on, but there's no more game clock at three minutes. Oh. And what you do at this point, it turns into a game to seven points above the leading team score. So if you're going into the last three, you're going in nine minutes of the fourth quarter of stop, whistle blows, and it's 95-92. Suddenly now, rather than it just being a game for three more minutes, it's now a game to 102 points. You won't necessarily have buzzer beaters, but you'll have a game-winning shot every single game in this play. First one to 102. Or first one to just seven points past whatever it is. If it's 121 to 56, it's first one to 128. What do you think? I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this, yeah. I like the fouling at the end of the game. Like, I get it. I know why you do it. It's a high percentage shot for the amount of people who are going to be holding the ball. It really, like, it's just a slow, chunky end of the game. To do something like that would really raise that excitement, really get that blood pressure going. And you would see the greats really show. And I think that would be exciting. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting idea. I love the idea of a game, game-winning shot. Every single play, yeah. like every every single game, 82 games for every team. At some point during that game, there's going to be a shot that it's boom, dagger, done. Yes, I think that would be absolutely insane. And it would lead to way more uh, kind of excitement in that tail end of the game when a team is up by, you know, a disgusting amount. And it's just like, you can, you can have this team maybe just take a real hard run at trying to to kind of come back and get the job. Not to mention the timing of the games might be a little bit more consistent. Yeah. I remember even when I was like 10 years old watching an NBA playoff game, and my mom said, you know, you got to go to bed, and <laughs> you got to go to bed. I'm just like, there's just a minute five left, <laughs> and a half an hour later, there's just 12 <laughs> seconds left. left. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, go to bed. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I think it would be exciting to be a cool thing idea like I don't know like kind of maybe they have to work on that a little more in practice but I like it I like it yes I like it a lot 
for sure. So it's always seven points more. So even if it was like, let's say it was 82 to 93, is it is that? Yeah, it's a game to 100. Okay, no yeah, matter seven what. points, yeah, past the past the whoever's winning at the time. Okay, okay. So it so it'd be so if it was once again if it was 90, it would have to go to 97. Exactly. And if the team was 20 points behind, or if it was one point, yep. it would just one team would have an advantage. You eliminate overtimes this way. Yeah, it's, I like it. I like it. I, I right. like that, and I think it would make older players or players that are. Uh, even they're getting a lot of minutes or big parts of their team doesn't have these weird long games where they go into two overtimes they play tomorrow. Like it's just it doesn't. Yeah, when you have players sitting. Yeah, like sitting it's all like, over the place. I, I don't like have. watching players sit on the bench for you know a whole bunch of games. It just it'd be better if you can shorten the game up almost in a way, even though in theory it's less time. Okay, uh, so that will be the end of the show. Uh, we're going to thank you for listening. And once again, if you go check out our uh, Twitter, which is For the Love. Um, for the Love Pod. For the Love Pod. Uh, it's, uh, you know, this is uh, something we do literally for the love. And we want to thank you guys for listening. And this will be a first, hopefully, of many. I should probably say something at this point. So this has been Charles. It's been great fun doing it. See you next week. Here we go.